This is the Documentary on One from RTE in Ireland. A quick note to say the Documentary on One is now available for sponsorship, both on radio and podcast. If you're interested, email documentaries at rte.ie for more information. And now to today's story. Connor Walsh was a minimalist piano composer from Swinford, County Mayo. His musical career was just beginning when he died in 2016 at the age of 36. After his death, his family found over 30 unpublished tracks on his laptop and so began their journey to release his posthumous debut album. Narrated by Owen Butler, this is Connor Walsh passing through. I like the idea of conveying a lot through a little, conveying emotions through music without there necessarily being lyrics, without there being a narrative, so... This is the voice and music of Conor Walsh, a self-taught musician and composer from Swinford and County Mayo. It's nice to consider images and imagery, I think, when I play my music and compose my music. He began composing as a teenager, writing short pieces on an old piano that sat in the lobby of his family's 100-year-old hotel. The piano has got a lot of character, I feel. It's got a lot of ghosts. There are many people who've played the piano through the years, from the 20s on, we're obviously not with us anymore. Connor himself is now no longer with us. It's like the piano is this permanent fixture in the lobby and everybody passes through, every life is transient, but the piano is always there. On the 11th of March 2016, he died suddenly of a heart attack. 36-year-old Connor Walsh has been described as a spellbinding pianist and played with top national and international artists. Hosier is among those who've led tributes to Connor. In his 30s, Connor had reached a stage in his career where he was performing his music at the likes of The Electric Picnic and other voices. I knew Connor for over 20 years and he'd often spoken to me about an album he was working on. After Connor's funeral, his sister Fiona decided to have a look at his laptop, but it was locked. This whole laptop became, for me, kind of a really, a really important aspect of Connor that I, I needed to know about. I needed to figure out, was he doing what he wanted to do? Was he actually creating, you know, worthwhile music? For me, it was like, oh, yes, this, this, is, this is it. This is where I find out, you know, the moment of truth. For, like, was, what was he doing for those years? His family didn't know the password, but his former manager had a suggestion. It worked. Sure enough, there's a, there was a folder on the desktop called Album Tracks. Um, it was 37 tracks that we worked with and yeah that was the the start of I suppose getting together this album and that for me was like there was no question about it like it just, just had to be out there it had to be looked at and get it released Most of the music you'll hear in this documentary was recovered from Connor's laptop after he died These are the tracks that became his debut album The Lucid and this is the opening track Bon Frenza. Connor was born in Dublin in 1979, the eldest of six. His father, Michael, was an engineer with RTE. When Connor was eight, the family moved to Swinford, County Mayo, where they took over the running of O'Connor's Hotel, which had been in his mother's family for over a century. So this is the house that we grew up in. Um, this is the back of O'Connor's Hotel on Minster Street, Swinford, which is now a cafe. 
Connor's brother Michael. This is where we spent our youth. Connor, Dermot, myself, Fiona Pierce and Marianne. And my dad, my mom, and my granny. We all grew up here. And then obviously countless other people before us. Um, this is our living space. This is where we used to eat. In there is where we used to watch TV. If you continue on down here, like there'd be all sorts of functions, all sorts of different gatherings. They had a great growing up in Swinford. Huge house. Connor's mother, Murray. There was three stories, front to back, rooms all over the place, higgledy-piggledy. I thought that they would be annoyed with me when they grew up, that I brought them up in such an extraordinary kind of place. Connor said, no, it was amazing. <laughs> in Dublin, Connor had shown promise as a singer. Connor had a lovely soprano voice when he was a child. And somebody reminded me lately, they were at a party one night and Connor sang and he sang Oh Holy Night. Oh Holy Night wasn't going to cut it on the schoolyards of Mayo. Connor proved adaptable. He was over eight by the time he came down here to Swinford and uh, things changed. Football, GA, that entered the scene and all the boys were playing GA. Connor wasn't good at that stage, but he learned. He worked at it <laughs> and he became quite good so that he could be with the boys, with the lads. After his death, Connor's family started listening to what he'd been working on. Like this track, Fantasia, one of Connor's oldest compositions. They had to decide what pieces would make it onto the album. Of the 37 tracks they found, 25 were finished. For Connor's brother Pierce, this wasn't an easy task. When we were kind of made aware of the fact that there was all of these tracks sitting on the laptop, it was a really kind of a weird experience, even just trying to, you know, face the music, so to speak, and actually listen to this stuff. And I remember Fiona, who kind of took charge immediately, said, look, if everyone can just take time to listen to the music and give feedback on what they'd like to see on the album, it felt like it was going to be our last interaction with Connor. And I suppose you wanted to kind of hang on to that for, for as long as you could. There was so much there that we'd never heard before. So in one way, it kind of brought him back to life momentarily. I played football with Connor as a kid, and above all, I remember him as a fierce competitor. I never realised he was also a hugely talented musician. The music was there in the background. He, he speaks about this so many times, about going to a different teacher and doing a grade or two and that. He just hated that. He really hated that. The piano is in the family for generations upon generations. My aunt played piano too. She played Chopin and she played other old masters and he would have heard classical music on the record player. Blabohem would be playing away or Tchaikovsky, lots of things. So he had to be influenced by that kind of music. At a certain stage, I don't think he ever passed the piano that he wouldn't sit down and play something. As well as the music from the album, we also have a recording of Connor's voice from a short film made just three years before his death. What was interesting as a kid was like, because it's in the lobby, there would be people coming in and out all the time. So, you know, looking back on it, it was probably a good way of getting used to playing in front of people because um, I mean, you had a choice when you sat down to play the piano, whether you were going to stop when somebody came in 
or whether you're going to keep going. Eventually, I think you kind of decide you're just going to keep going and ignore whoever's coming in or out. So you know, it's kind of an interesting way to start performing piano, I suppose. As a teenager, Connor listened to Radiohead, Tool, and Aphex Twin, but most of all, he loved Nirvana. Connor's sister Fiona was ten years younger than him. Connor's room was kind of in the centre of the house, and he always had his keyboard and A track set up there, and his acoustic guitar. And the earliest memory I remember of Connor was him playing Nirvana on his guitar, and being obsessed with Kurt Cobain and you know the classic like tie dye sort of long sleeve jumpers I think that were big in style back in the 90s. When I think about growing up with Connor in in Swinford. Martin Dyer is a poet and a friend of Connor's. I can't in my mind get any further back than the first time I saw him singing and playing guitar. 1994 and 1995. And I remember that it was in fact a, a Nirvana tribute group that he had joined. And I remember Connor just stopping the room and all present just beheld what he was doing, what he was doing with his voice, what he was doing with with the guitar. And very soon after that, he was writing music and he had plans for training. Not a lot of plans for performing at that stage, I remember. He was 17, 18 years of age. After leaving him for a few years, I came back to it in my teens, my late teens, and started playing uh, little tunes, little melodies, and they um, evolved into pieces. Early reviews were mixed. His youngest sister, Marianne, was a small child at the time. But I do remember him telling me just to sit down and just listen to some music that he had put together. And But I remember being so young, I was like, why are you doing this? What's going on here? And he was like, but isn't it nice? Don't, don't you like it? I was like, yeah, it's fine, but... Do you know, I've better things to be doing. I've cats to go play with or whatever. Do you know, I don't know what it was. Eventually, Connor found an audience. I was an agent for uh, French students and there were two girls there one time and they were leaders. They came from Paris. One was Camille and the other was Lucille. I remember one evening they asked me, where is Connor? We want him to play piano for us because it relaxes us. So he composed this piece of music called Camille. And it's, it's one piece that uh, it was very important to us. Ten tracks were chosen for the album, all written and performed by Connor. His family wanted to represent the range of music he composed over the years. In the first half, we hear material on solo piano. In the second, we hear a different style featuring electronics, like this piece called Le Motif, where Connor explores dramatic cinematic sounds. This place is called Balia on Ilon. There's only about five houses here, and it's surrounded by a tributary of the River Moy. Connor was taught to fish by his paternal grandfather, Louis, who lived in the family farmhouse in the townland of Ballon Island, about six miles from Swinford. These are the sounds that Connor has in his music. He just loved this place. And the river's just down there, about 150 yards. And he would walk down there to it. 
was brought up beside the River Moy. Even the the sounds of the countryside, the sounds of the the water, even the the kind of drony hums of milking machines and engines in the distances, and maybe uh, trains in the distances, and wind uh, howling through bridges and around bends of rivers. All that kind of stuff definitely influenced me. After finishing school, Connor went to college and qualified as a social worker, a pretty conventional career. But in his spare time, he still composed music and played with local bands. Connor's brother Pierce was 10 years younger. Connor was the older brother who had, like, you know, sorted things out. He was working full time in a good job. He was driving a really nice car. You know, things seemed to be sorted. He had this kind of, like, secure lifestyle. And, you know, that was the Connor I knew when I was 18. He was still cool. He still had a bit of long hair, a bit of a beard. He still wore cool clothes. He still played a bit of music. But he was the Connor that was going in a certain direction, um, which was, I don't know, at some stage he he took a, a drastic turn away from it. In May 2007, the two dominant characters in O'Connor's Hotel, his grandmother Nancy and Father Michael, both passed away within 36 hours of one another. Connor took seriously his role as a stand-in father figure to his five younger siblings, but his brother Dermot felt this wouldn't last. He assumed the role or he adopted the role. I don't think that was his character. Deep down, like, he was always empathetic, he was always family-orientated, he always looked after his brothers and sisters, 100%. But I think that Connor wasn't uh, conventional. Like, if you look back, kind of, across his whole life, he couldn't do the conventional very well. Do you know what I mean? Or he couldn't do it for a long time because that wasn't him. Connor grew up in a hotel with two pubs on either side. He was surrounded by traditional Irish music, an influence that can be heard on this track, Pleading Sylph. O'Connor's hotel closed its doors in 2008, and Marie and her younger children moved to the farmhouse in Ballin Island, which was now lying empty. When Connor was in Galway working in a juvenile detention centre, a guy broke in, hit him across the head with a plank of wood, and uh, he really thought, like, this was the end. This was the end of him. And, yeah, that freaked Connor out. That really freaked him out. He didn't like that. And it affected him. Not long after, he abandoned his career as a social worker. Dermot Walsh is not convinced the assault in Galway was necessarily the trigger for his brother's decision. It certainly impacted him in the sense that he lost confidence in himself and I suppose he realised the significance of what can happen in that role or in that environment. But I don't think that was a role he was going to stick in no matter what happened, you know. Connor had decided on a radical career change. Martin Dyer remembers. Definitely you can say that that point marks an intensification of his writing of his ambition, of his commitment, of his willingness to make sacrifices and take risks for the sake of the music. Within a couple of years, he was dealing with a natural musical identity, an artistic vocation. He had a sense of what he'd like to do, like to try to do. And it was, it was all around this idea of being a, a piano composer, a minimalist piano composer. At the time, I still thought of Connor as the Genghis Khan of male football man-markers, 
When he told me he was now a minimalist piano composer, I couldn't have been more surprised if he told me he was taking up ballet dancing. So my music is minimalist in genre, definitely. I'd never heard of minimalism, but that's how you would categorize my music as minimalist. So maybe it's because of the limitation in my training that that's what I went and did. Or maybe it's because, you know, I like the idea of conveying a lot through a little. I like that kind of little bit of uncertainty around minimalism. Like, I mean, yeah. Connor and Martin began performing at arts festivals around the country, calling themselves The Shore. And there definitely was a significant threshold that he had to cross in order to become a performer. And in some ways, we crossed that threshold together when we put this piano and poetry recital evening together. When she met him in Swinford, touching his famous hand, she could not have known the desire. Connor's mother Marie saw them perform in Swinford. There was a moment, an extraordinary moment. Connor was playing piano and Martin Dyer was reading poetry. And I thought, where is this going? Nobody will want to hear this. People only want to hear traditional Irish music around here. I was so fearful for him. And then he began to play. And it was the most simplest, beautiful music that I could imagine that he could play. And I knew then that this was vital to his life, that there was something extraordinary about it. But still, we thought, where are you going with this? How can you make a living on this? It's not possible. And he knew that and he struggled for a long, long time after that. In 2010, Connor invited me to see him appear at the Hard Working Class Heroes Festival in Dublin. I was blown away by his performance. The best thing that ever happened with me in my musical career was the Hard Working Class Heroes, without doubt, the Showcase Festival. And it's just been a massive experience, like absolutely massive, because you get to play to people from the industry, meet people from the industry, artists trying to make it in the industry. It's just a real like fast track education into uh, what the industry is like. Appearances at Electric Picnic and the Flat Lake Festival soon followed. In 2011, aged 32, Connor moved to Dublin to do a postgraduate degree in music technology at Trinity College. He made useful connections there most importantly with one of his lecturers, Enda Bates, who later produced his posthumous album. As a student, Connor was very interested in developing his own compositional voice. And I think maybe what he was looking for out of the programme was more knowledge about how to record and produce his own music to a higher standard. But perhaps in some respects, the academic context didn't really uh, suit him. So we were a two-year programme at the time. He decided to leave after one year with a postgraduate diploma. But myself and Connor always got on very well, so we kept in touch afterwards, and then I started to get involved with working with him on his own music. But city life wasn't for him. After graduating from Trinity, Connor moved back to Mayo for good. My name is Michael Tiernan, and I, I run this shop. <laughs> Tiernan Brothers. Tiernan Brothers is a fishing tackle shop in Foxford, County Mayo. 
Connor was a fly fisherman. He used to come in here quite regularly. I don't, I don't think that he did suit him. I think, you know, he was a, a countryman at heart. And um, I'd have seen him when he, when he got back here at weekends or whatever. He'd have rushed in here like, and he'd be looking at the flies and that. And you could see him de-stressing. I play Michael Tiernan The Lucid, the title track from Connor's album. He's hearing it for the first time. Well, I tell you what it's bringing to me is um, a mayfly hatching. Just the way it comes up and it breaks the surface, it comes out and flutters away. I could well imagine that was something that inspired him for that piece. If you can imagine a river flowing, the beat of that music came to it. But that's what it does for me anyway. very unlikely that somebody who didn't know Connor Walsh personally Martin Dyer might make a connection between the music that he wrote and fishing and and the waters of East Mayo but they're kind of inseparable subjects he brought his musical self out onto the water and he brought his angling self to the piano Between those two spheres were, were Connor's themes, the things that, that he felt that he was conjuring, the things that he felt he might be communicating. My name is Gary Smith. I'm from the same town as Connor Walsh Swinford. I used to fish with him. We used to fish on East Mayo here, where we are today, and also up in a place called the Con Canal. I suppose anything that Connor did, he was always passionate about it, and certainly in regard to angling, always had a grow for the environment and for fishing. Connor loved to get away to the less travelled spots. He loved being out there in the wilds. If it was an easy place to go fishing, that didn't really appeal to Connor. He was, I think, detaching from the general public or travelling a lesser travelled route, looking for places, looking out for places that he could actually bring his friends and say, look, I discovered this place, it's absolutely amazing. And that was actually part of the beauty of him. In 2012, Connor moved back into the abandoned family hotel in Swinford, County Mayo. This time in his life was captured in Connor's Hotel, a short film made by his friend Patrick Dyer. Connor and I had always spoken about doing something factual about him outside of maybe music videos or something abstract. And with being about him, uh, Connor the musician, there was also an opportunity to, to use the hotel, the space he was using creatively. My use of the hotel now here is um, basically just using the space that it offers me. I find it inspiring to a certain level being here um, because it's so old and quirky and it has lots of character and history. But it's a counterbalance really to, um, I suppose, the effect of the recession on a small rural town in Mayo. So it's, you know, it's a lonely kind of existence in a way but it's countered by uh, the freedom I have here to use this space creatively so uh, I guess if I was in a nice apartment in Dublin or somewhere like that I'd, I'd find it tough to be honest as a aspiring composer to pay the bills Connor had started to talk about an album he was working on at the moment I'm recording an album so I'm availing of the space here on my own to run a little studio upstairs here in the hotel. 
So that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm just trying to use it as a creative area to um, get my work done here. What Connor neglected to mention there is that, at the same time, he was running a bar in the hotel. In fact, this bar had become quite a late-night hotspot in Swinford. His brother Pierce helped out. Originally, I remember he just sold cans and bottles. And then he brought in draft, um, putting pieces together as he went along. It was like he didn't really know how to run a barn. And I think Connor, deep down, I don't think he really cared about spurring on this bustling business in the centre of town. I think he was like, if I can make a bit of cash while being able to hang out, play music in the hotel and have the crack with people and have a few pints, I'm hitting absolute jackpot here. And I think temporarily, at least, he did that. He hit a sweet spot. In 2013, things really started to take off for Connor and his music. He was touring Irish music festivals and attracting media attention. Sitting with me is Connor Walsh. Connor, you're very welcome. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Here he is interviewed by Philip King on RTE Radio 1's The South Wind Blows. Are you gigging? Are you out around? And are your recordings available for people to... What do they do these days? Download them? Buy them? Uh, buy them, hopefully. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I've been gigging a lot the last six months. I've had a really busy six months and really great six months. I was in Dingle back in December. I toured with uh, Hosier in uh, late December, early January. It's been brilliant. So now I'm, for the next couple of months, I'm focusing on releasing an album in the summer. So it's definitely going to be released this summer. Very beautiful. What piece will you play for us to finish? This is called The Front. Connor's mother Marie was one of his biggest fans. Did you see any of his performances at, I'm, I'm guessing you probably weren't at the Electric Picnic or whatever, but did you see... Why do you think I wasn't at Electric Picnic? <laughs> well, well, my, my, of course my, my, I was. Were you were there, really? Yes. Oh, sorry, okay, all right. Thank God, so happy that we went to as many performances as we could. He opened for Hosier in Cork. We were there. A few other ones that he was at that I didn't get to. Another Love Story and uh, Body and Soul. One of his rare television appearances came in February 2014, where he played at the Other Voices Showcase in Derry. Tonight, in the other room, we have Connor Walsh. Marianne and myself went up to Derry to Other Voices in the Guildhall. It was so beautiful. It was just magnificent. Connor may have moved on from grunge, but he hadn't moved on from its aesthetic. He wore scruffy jeans and trainers and had ruffled hair. His signature, first developed in the lobby of O'Connor's Hotel, was to ignore rather than perform for his audience. He wasn't willing to conform or change his music or his approach. Connor's brother Pierce works in marketing. He once suggested Connor consider smartening up his image. People said to him you should dress smarter when you're on stage or you should try and interact with the audience or talk to the audience more or throw a singer up there with you or something like this but you know his thing was like I'm going to go with the flow I'm going to kind of feel this one out for myself and I'm going to make sure that I'm before I even consider any of that stuff I'm just going to make sure I'm really really good but his point was like he, he's like I know I know I have something I know I'm really good I also know I'm really passionate and I'm going to keep going no matter what 
And I think that that was it was that like determination inside him and his absolute the absolute joy he got from playing that kind of drove him. And he felt like it would do the, the speaking for itself. And I think it did. It eventually did. Connor's music, it's original, but it's also wonderfully familiar and has the skill of getting access to the listener's heart. And that's the, that's the power of it. While he was performing, there really was a spell cast across the room and everybody was audience. Everybody was kind of cornered by this uh, moment of, of listening and he brought us along. Listening to Connor's music, you might assume he was a quiet, sensitive soul. He was, but as his friend Ender Murta will tell you, that wasn't the full story. Obviously with the music and the image that people would have of him sitting on the piano and not singing and all that stuff, people thought he was really kind of of an introvert. People who think he was quiet are people who just didn't spend much time with him because he was like one of the most opinionated people that you'd ever meet um, and he was really polite but actually he was one of the most confident guys and one of the, you know quite prickly at times one really funny moment was that it was a late night down in the hotel and he'd, he was playing the music and there's a couple of women there as well and he just said to me and really kind of like I'd never really seen him do it before he goes I'll watch this I'll have the meeting out of my hand soon. And he's like, like, oh, he was kind of bowing the head and, you know, everybody's like, oh, sure. And they were afterwards, they were chatting, he was like, oh, they love that stuff. It's like... It was hard not to fall in love with Connor. Connor's friend, Lauren Norton. He was very smart and articulate and incredibly talented. And he was just a good-looking guy. His brother, Michael, wasn't always so enamoured. I have a completely different perspective, which is just... Like, when he was down in the bar, I would sometimes take the bottles and bring them to the bottle bank and clear them for him. You know what I mean? Other people are, like, watching him play music, going, oh, isn't he great? He must be practising all the time. It's like, yeah, but he wasn't clearing the bottles out of the bar downstairs. In the summer of 2014, Connor continued to perform live dates. But his focus now was on his first commercial release, a four-track EP that was going to be the first step towards an album. I first heard Connor's music on Lyric FM, actually. I think it was the summer of 2014. Rob Farhat ran a record label called Ensemble. We met for a coffee. Connor basically said to me he had this EP that he wanted to release, that he felt that we would be the most suited people to release it for him, because it, I think it was probably the closest thing Connor ever made to, to making a pitch. In reality, he didn't need to pitch anything to me. I was on board like straight away, and but I really thought there was something very special there as an artist. So, um, yeah, we decided to do it. Around that time, Connor abruptly closed the bar in O'Connor's hotel and moved to a remote fishing cottage by the River Moy, where he lived alone. Connor's brother, Michael. He just disappeared, went out of the country, lived in the house on his own and did his own thing. Why? What? For what reason? What was the problem? What? Like, I don't know. Michael wasn't the only one confused by Connor's actions. His sister Fiona. Naturally, you don't think when, you're, when your older brother moves to an isolated cottage in the west of Ireland, you have to wonder what, what are they doing? Like, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not, I mean, it's a very unusual 
decision to make or you know road to take to, to kind of decide to move to this isolated area and just create or you know play music. Some of the tracks Connor was working on for the EP were compositions he'd been kicking around for seven or eight years. Martin Dyer admired his work ethic. Connor worked extremely hard, there's no doubt about that, and he made sacrifices for his music, but this was his job, this was his vocation, and he needed time to work. He needed time to develop. He needed a certain private platform in order to do that. I don't, I don't recall him ever talking about having difficulty writing. He was a, a perfectionist of some kind. He had very high standards and uh, he knew how to apply himself. And it's ready when it's ready. That's what he used to say. There's no point in releasing something that's not good enough. He always said that. But this perfectionism was becoming an issue. When I say perfectionist, that seems like Connor was perfectionist in every year. It was like, which he was far from. But in regards to his music, in regards to what he put out there, what he created. I mean, I've never met anyone who would be so critical or so cynical about maybe this piece of the tune and it's not quite reaching what he wanted. I suppose he had a hard time deciding, you know, when was this going to be good enough to, to, to put out there? Even in periods of isolation, Connor stayed in contact with a wide circle of friends by email. Writer and musician Lauren Norton had met Connor once at a party six years earlier. She now lived in California. It wasn't just a conversation about music. It was we were often talking about like our family's expectations of us and how difficult it is to be a creative person and not have a traditional career track. This is the first message that came up. He said, I get lots of satisfaction from my music, but I have at least one day a week where I hate it. But recently my mother has stopped suggesting I become a teacher, so this is good. I'll show you our 100-year-old hotel. You seem to have a keen eye. Um, you'll love it. In January 2015, Lauren visited Connor and Mayo. It was only their second meeting. The encounter was entirely platonic. When I met Connor in January 2015, he was like really happy that I'd come to see him. He was definitely like in really good form. He was excited to show me Swinford. And so I met some of his friends. I met like some of the local characters, saw the hotel and saw the cottage. And yeah, the cottage was in this beautiful spot. It was just lovely. It seemed very idyllic. Connor toured Ireland again that summer of 2015. At 36, he was finally ready to make his debut as a recording artist. The front EP was released on October 31st, 2015. Connor agonised over the final mixes right up to the 11th hour. The launch at the Unitarian Church in Dublin was a sellout and the reviews it received were positive. Most people would have considered that a success, but it was not the seismic breakthrough Connor had been hoping for. Um, I don't know. I honestly can't say. Um, I, I think that I personally was disappointed. And that's, like, the EP was, I thought it was perfect. I thought it was a perfect record. And I don't think there was anything wrong with the marketing of it or anything like that. Um, often when you release a record or a book, like there's kind of a deafening silence around it, you know. Fiona saw the impact this had on her brother. He was very, very, I would say, very down about it. 
but he would take it very much like to heart like I mean he was working on this for for years like he wanted to get something out there and ultimately it happened and it wasn't the big like oh this is a huge success it wasn't a failure but it wasn't maybe picked up as as quickly as he would have liked you know yeah he took that very very badly this piece is called Tinna, meaning fire in Irish, the indispensable source of heat in Connor's cottage. Connor was 36 before he completed four tracks for the front EP. Completing another dozen odd for an album must have seemed like a mountain to climb. In the months that followed, as he buried himself in his music, Local fishermen noticed Connor's absence from the riverbank, and Lauren was one of only a handful of visitors to the cottage. It just happened that Martin Dyer and Donald Ryan were reading, and they were writers that he, he really respected. And there were loads of people, of course, giving Connor the back slaps and um, congratulating him on the on the EP. But there was also kind of the sense that things had moved on a bit. So after um, after the reading, we were having like drinks. I remember like Connor just getting like really drunk that night while I was driving him, like driving like kind of an inebriated Connor back to his cottage. And it was like really cold, really damp. There was a fireplace just full of ash. Like there was like no chance you were going to be able to make a decent fire in this fireplace. And yeah, I think we, we just kind of fell asleep without talking to each other. And I got up in the morning before he woke up and left. That would have been then the last time that I saw him. Connor's family could see that he wasn't himself. Not long after that night, he moved back home with his mother in Ballin Island. But I certainly was aware that he wasn't looking well. He was not looking well at all. And he didn't seem to have a lot of energy. And I thought that he'd come here now to live with me for a few months for as long as he wanted and he will get better. He will begin to improve. He'll come back to himself. Connor's final live performance was at Other Voices in Dingle on December 5th, 2015. He left here in the morning by the quarter past six and I went with him to the door and the trees were waving back and forth. And I have to say this, Connor hadn't any money. He wasn't really making money. So I had just some money and I handed it to him. He said, no, mum, I can't take that. He said, if I don't do it myself, I can't rely on you or anybody else. I can't ask you. On the evening of Friday, March 11th, 2016, Connor was at home cooking a beef stew when he suffered a fatal heart attack. He said, it'll be another 15 minutes at least, mum. But come here, I want to show you something. He said, come over. And he had the laptop open. He said, look at this. And he was showing me a chef preparing, we'll say, for I suppose some kind of stew as well. I just walked away then and I got to about there when he said, oh, mum, he says, I don't feel well at all. And I looked back and he was falling to the side of the chair. And as I ran towards him, he seemed to right himself and come up again. I thought, oh, thank God. But then he fell again. And I put my arms around him and caught him. And I couldn't understand why he was so heavy. The weight was unbelievable. He was just still. Marie called her son Michael, who called the emergency services. I had got through to 
neighbours down here, Henley's, and Pat was a Gartha, Deirdre was a nurse, so they came up and, and she just turned to me and said, Why? She said, I think he's gone. Marianne Walsh was 15 when she lost her father. Now at 23, she was losing her beloved older brother. I remember pulling up just by the back door and Michael was like, Connor's in the kitchen now. And I asked him, what do I do? Do I go in, do I not? And Michael was like, I don't know, I, I don't know. And, and then I came in and I'm, I'm really glad I got to see Connor. Really, really glad I saw him because he was just, he was lying there. Um, obviously the paramedics had been, um, but his hair was scruffy and he was wearing his Converse and his corduroy jeans and like one of my dad's old shirts and it was just Connor. Huge crowds descended on Swinford for Connor's funeral. Online tributes poured in. But even in the midst of unbearable loss, the family began to wonder what Connor had been working on, shut away in that cottage before he died. After accessing the laptop, they got their answer. Connor must have spent years honing these unreleased tracks. Fiona was installed as project manager for the album which they had now decided to release. So I probably did feel a bit guilty as well. I was like, maybe I should have been paying more attention because he was doing very well and I could have been the more encouraging, maybe younger sister. So, you know, if for me it was maybe uh, I'll, I'll make peace with this by, by doing this for him and getting this, you know, out there. There's a massive queue of people out the door. In March 2019, three years after he passed, Connor's debut album, The Lucid, was launched at the Sugar Club in Dublin. You're all very welcome to the Sugar Club for the launch of Conor Wanch's debut and posthumous album. Um. <laughs> it was a bittersweet occasion. Such a strange mixture of happiness, sadness and regret, as well as a tremendous amount of admiration for what Conor and his friends and family had all come together to accomplish. So much work went on behind the scenes, but I think that's why the Lucid has been so successful, that everyone behind it, nobody was getting money for it, nobody was getting any credit for it. People felt like they wanted to do it and somewhere inside them they felt like they needed to do it for Connor. And again, I think that's just representative of, of what he gave to everyone when he was here. Um, so my name's Enda Bates. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with... Connor's old friend and lecturer, Enda Bates, produced The Lucid. Uh, we shared an interest in experimental music and uh, the GAA and not a lot of overlap between those two areas. Uh, the tracks were quite finished and quite polished. And even though they may not have been exactly the form or the way that Connor would have released them, they were still very much presentable and very, very good in all sorts of ways. So in many respects, it was simple because the music that was there, that was music. And really, I was just putting a bit of polish on it and then putting it together. But at the same time, it was very, very difficult because, of course, I was constantly aware of all of the changes and all of the tweaks and adjustments that Connor would have made if he'd been there to do it. And I think considering the tragic circumstances, that was possibly the best that could be done. Uh, Owen Gallagher and David Lenehan, uh, these guys have actually brought together the whole distribution process in terms of delivering the vinyls, the hard copies of the, the, the records. An order has just come in from Bangladesh for 50 records and we've guaranteed next day delivery. So if you need to leave early... Since Connor's death, the Connor Walsh Memorial Cup has been awarded to the first person who catches a salmon on the River Moy each year. The Connor Walsh website has been built. An annual bursary in his name is also awarded to support young up-and-coming artists at the Hard Working Class Heroes Festival. 
But Connor's music, hopefully, will prove his most enduring legacy. The music is finding its own way, and it's finding its way into, into documentaries and into, into ads, into radio, finding its way online into the endless caverns of Spotify. And that's purely about the quality of the music. That's about the, the emotional reach and the originality. And I think it's a remarkable thing that when you think about it, that one man with their piano and all that self-belief and determination, the hard work and sacrifice and his persistence to keep going in spite of all the rejections and all the uncertainty and all the unfamiliarity that came with it could leave something so meaningful and so special to so many people, including all of us here tonight. That is a legacy that Connor should be proud of. Thank you very much. Enjoy your night. You've been listening to Connor Walsh passing through from the documentary on one. It was narrated by Owen Butler and was produced by Owen Butler and Sarah Blake. For more information on Connor's music, visit connorwalshmusic.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.